Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Monday, July 9th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer, and coming up on today's edition of the show, we'll speak to a retired lieutenant general from the Marine Corps, Frank Labuti, also served in the New York City Police Department's Counterterrorism Bureau, also did some national work in counterterrorism, and now is the CEO of a civilian organization. We're going to talk to him about the similarities and differences between being a general officer and being a CEO, and how difficult it can be, even for someone who has three stars on their shoulder, to transition into the veteran-slash-civilian community. And, of course, it's Monday, and that means IAVA will be joining us. Tom Porter, IAVA, is going to be right here in studio to talk to us about the latest and greatest issues that are of concern to the membership of IAVA. So we've got a lot coming up on today's show, and we kick it off now by welcoming Jake Hughes to the studio. Jake, how are you? It's been a while. Yeah, it has been, Eric. I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm all right. Um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, like a mini vacation, basically. It took two days off after the holidays, so haven't been here in, what, five days? It was a lot of driving. We drove all the way up to Connecticut on Tuesday night and then drove all the way back here on Friday night and, uh, well, Friday afternoon into night because it was one of those ridiculously long drives that's it's a drive from here to New York uh, in Connecticut that can take you three hours, three three hours and forty five minutes, or it can take you nine or ten hours. On our way home, it was more like nine or ten hours. It was just a, uh, it was a very long day, but great to see the family. Great to celebrate the Fourth of July, our Independence Day, a great holiday, and uh, you know that it stinks. It really does that it was on a Wednesday. Because as we know, most businesses, if it's on a Tuesday or a Thursday, they'll give you Monday or Friday off. Tuesday is also just a bad day for it. Fourth of July is one of those ones where you want to have the day off afterwards. Right. Sunday, horrible day to have the Fourth of July on. <laughs> Sunday, but Wednesday, right in the middle of the week. Um, not not the greatest, but it was great to still be able to see my family and uh, and celebrate the uh, the holiday with them and get some time on the beach, get a little bit of sun. And then, of course, get back down here to talk about everything that's going on. But how was your time off? You you took the same days off. Yes, and it was very interesting. Because first and foremost, it was not Philadelphia. It was Pittsburgh. I apologize. I'm oh, you were, oh, you said Philadelphia last y- week. Yeah, yeah it, it yeah. was Pittsburgh. Oh, well, that's a lot longer drive. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> you can tell, like, again, if you if you could see me, I'm sunburned where my jacket, my riding jacket and my gloves didn't meet because yeah, I was on my motorcycle. It, it, Jake looks like someone scratched his arm, but it's actually just some uh, stripes of sunburn where the yeah. sun got through his jacket. So Pittsburgh, yeah, that's a much longer ride. Philadelphia is like you know, a couple hours Pittsburgh's like, I don't know, how long did it take you to get out About there? six hours. About six hours? Yeah. So. But it, it was very interesting because uh, Friday night we had a punk rock show, which was a lot of fun, but I stayed out of the pit because moshing is a young man's game, and if I get in a mosh pit, I feel it for like weeks. I can't do that anymore. And then Sunday was all business, but Saturday we didn't have a plan. 
Mm-hmm. So we're driving around downtown trying to find some place, something to do, like a movie theater or something, and we start noticing that there's people walking around in animal costumes. Furries. Yeah, exactly. And we found out apparently <laughs> Pittsburgh hosts one of the world's largest furry conventions oh, wow. that weekend. And my buddy was like, dude, we got to go. I'm like, why yeah. would we go? He said, prime <laughs> people watching. And you know what? He was right. It was 25 bucks for a day pass. We went in there. And honestly, it was like any other nerdy convention. You know, Some people were dressed up. Some people weren't. Everyone was basically friendly. No one gave a crap what you looked like. Yeah. You know, I even won a T-shirt and a raffle. Wow. There you go. So it's... Uh, yeah, you know, it's one of those things that I'm kind of familiar with just in passing. I know what furries are. It's uh, I, And then I, I have seen a gathering of people, adults in, in animal costumes before, and you go like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Hey, to each their own. Exactly. Whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it. Apparently, though, unless you are a 77-year-old Air Force veteran in Florida, then don't do what you'd like, particularly oh. if that's putting a flag out in front of your home. Larry Murphy says he was forced to sell his house at the Tides Condominiums in Sweetwater, Florida, over a battle involving the Homeowners Association and a small American flag. He says about seven years ago, he wanted to display a modest flag in a flower pot on his front porch as a way to show his love for his country and respect for the troops. Small flag stands for a big thank you is what he tells us, but the HOA viewed it differently and sent him a violation letter calling the 17-inch flag an unauthorized object. Uh, the HOA fined him $100 each day the flag was in the pot. What? Eventually ran up $1,000 in fees, so I guess it was out there for 10 days. I can do that kind of math. So Murphy got a lawyer, filed a lawsuit. HOA settled in 2012. Two sides agreed that the flag could fly, but... The HOA turned the flag restriction into a flower pot ordinance instead. So he has the flag in a flower pot. They legally agree that he's allowed to put it out there because essentially, you know, they're not going to win that lawsuit. Uh, so because of that, they're like, well, how else could we get rid of it? Oh, let's tell him that we can't have a flower pot out in front of his house. What? Yeah. So it's it's a workaround. And again, they started fining him $100 each day. Um, it, it's it's fascinating fascinating and apparently what he says is that the fees he had to pay to the homeowners association were being used to pay down those fines so they took his money and paid off those fines without even telling him about it so he thought he was paying the required fees instead they were taking that money for the fines meaning that he was now behind on his payments to the homeowners association uh and apparently he said then it got to where they were just Focusing on any little thing that they could find, making his life miserable, violation after violation. Uh, one of the violations, this this is just fascinating to me, lights that were wrapped around his outside tree were solar powered, but the homeowners association requires them to be battery powered. What? Yeah. So using a more efficient means of energy in Florida, solar power is a pretty good idea down there. Uh, that against the rules another time they got him because the lights on his bushes were too bright and then also cited him once because his car was not parked directly in front of his garage door well, uh, i i'm at a loss for words i don't know what to say that is ridiculous how they're going after this guy they lost they came to a settlement basically in the court case he won on flying the flag so they decided to be vindictive after that and go after him for everything that they can do. 
Apparently, they're going to be back in court because there's going to be a trial. Murphy taking the HOA back to court early next year, this time in state circuit court. And basically, his lawyer says the whole thing is insane, is seeking damages from the HOA for infliction of emotional distress, breach of contract. I, you know, when I hear about lawsuits about emotional distress, sometimes uh, I have a lot of questions about them. But when you've got a homeowners association, the idea of which I don't particularly like anyway. Yeah. You know, if if I don't want to live someplace where there's a homeowners association, where there's police, essentially, like the neighborhood police, not actual police, but the people who are like, oh, well, your your pool, your above ground pool, and it's only allowed to be three feet above ground. It's four feet. So you're going to have to get rid of that. Yeah. This neighborly busybodies and that's a, that's gossipy what old is. women. And that's what it is. It's the it's the neighborhood uh, busybodies that think of themselves like some sort of police. And, oh, they're just taking care of the neighborhood. Uh, OK, I guess. But every time I've known someone who lived someplace that had a homeowners association, there's been at least one issue, like not not to this extent, but there's been at least one or two things that they're like, yeah, I can't believe it. They made me take down whatever, or they gave me a fine for this. They came over with a, a ruler a guy was telling me about to measure his grass because someone complained that he, his grass had gotten too long. I, it was a, down in Jacksonville, Florida, actually, so I don't know. It wasn't a condo. I was going to say it may be the same place. They came over with a ruler. It was a place I would go and play poker. And I knew this house. It was a very well-maintained house, but a neighbor apparently felt that the grass had gotten a little bit too long and called the people and in the homeowners association rules or bylaws or whatever, there is a maximum length and the person came with a ruler to check the grass. And that is ridiculous. Oh, and apparently he was like a quarter inch over, so they gave him a warning and he was like, I yeah, he eventually sold that house. I don't I don't understand. I mean, I understand the theory of what a homeowners association is supposed to be, but I have zero interest in being a part of one. Also, paying fees? No, I'm not going to give you money for the privilege of living in your neighborhood. If it were a good neighborhood, I wouldn't have to pay you to do that. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's a very, uh, oh man, it's, it's a very uh, upsetting thing to see someone, you know, basically having an organization come after him because he beat them in court on being able to fly this 17-inch American flag and this wasn't, you know, he, the guy didn't put a 50-foot flagpole in the front of his yard. I could understand if the homeowners association there was like, all right, that why would you do that? That doesn't look right. A 17-inch flag, I mean, it's this big, 17 inches. That's a slightly longer than your foot. If, you, if you're a typical average adult-sized male, slightly longer than your foot. That's how long this flag was in a flower pot. And they said, nope, not allowed to do that. And you wonder what it was about that because it clearly was the flag originally and then it was the flower pot and is this one of those instances where someone's like well someone might be offended that you have the american flag out there i mean that's the only thing i can think of good if you're offended good <laughs> and let me know because i want to know who you are if you're offended by our nation's flag i it, there's a lot of this going on right now and that's good identify yourselves let me know who you are if I'm living next door to you. If you don't like, we had flags out in front of our house for the 4th of July. We weren't even down here, but we put them out here. Um, no one had a problem with those. And if someone had, good, come over and tell me. That'd be fine. Let's have a conversation. And then let's have a conversation about if you dislike that flag and what it stands for and everything. Then we can have another conversation after that about what are you doing here then? Why here? I hear if this place is so horrible, but this, this goes back years and this is, uh, 
seems a combination of that overzealous busybody homeowner association like you were talking about and the the I, I don't know. I mean, that flag, we're looking at a picture. If you can go to ConnectingVets.com and find this story right on the front page of the website, there's a picture of his condo, and it's it's a tiny flag. It's barely visible in the picture. Picture illustrates it very well. Um, the flower pot is, so there's two separate little stairwells going up. It's one of these uh, condos where it's like one is a mirror image of the other. So his neighbor has a little stairwell right next to, and a stairwell. I'm talking two, three steps to get up to a door. It's not not a lot of stairs. And he has, it appears, a flower pot. It looks like behind the stairs, maybe. It's kind of hard to tell, behind or in front. And you know why it's hard to tell, Jake? Why is that? Because it's so dang small. You can't <laughs> see it. Who cares? And yeah, it does. It makes his place look slightly different. You know, 11934 is the address. Well, it looks slightly different than 11935. The one next door was 11935. The person that complained, we don't know. And that's the other thing about these homeowners associations, these anonymous reports that people are able to make. Dude, if you got a problem, come come tell someone. Now, is it that important that they all look the same? It's like, what are you, the Borg? Well, yeah, that's what homeowners associations are about. You know, keep up the property values by making sure that everything fo- everybody follows the rules. I I guess there's got to be a homeowners association out there that's a good deal and that does good things. But it seems I'm telling you, everybody I know who lives in a homeowners association dominated place, they don't like it. And they complain about the the little things that they do like this. This is an extreme example. I mean, the guy's having to take him to court for a second time in the last few years. It's ridiculous. And when the guy's a veteran, you know he's a 77-year-old Air Force veteran. You, you know this. And then you didn't think that the media would come talking about this? You're out of your minds. You're out of your minds. But I bet you there are the, the, the people on that homeowners association, they think that they're in the right. Oh, yeah. And that's the bizarre thing. And it's like that, as you said, that the busybodies, the power hungry, they get a little bit of power. Most people that have run homeowners associations that I've been aware of are people who never really ran anything else. They don't have any control over anything else. So they kind of work their way into that homeowners their association. Their own little fiefdom. Leadership. Fiefdom is the fiefdom. correct Fiefdom. I apologize. There you go. Fiefdom. Hey, that's okay. You've learned something new and it's Mondays. So I like fifes, though. One thing. Yeah. Fife and drum corps. There you go. Those are always good things. Um, it is a uh, just an upsetting story, and, and we'll keep an eye on it. I mean, I'm sure he's going to win in court again. He's moved, so he doesn't live there anymore. So good decision, Larry. Uh, Larry Murphy is the guy. Uh, glad that he's not living there anymore, but the fact that he had to go through this and the fact that someone was over a 17-inch flag, which then you know, a legal challenge was made, and it was found, well, that's totally legal. They cannot ban the American flag. Shocking that you have to do to go to court to realize that in the United States. But uh, then they tried to ban flower pots. No flower pots outside. Oh, no windows on your house. People might see inside and see things that aren't HOA approved. No doors. They're an easy access point for robbers. Yep. There you go. No gutters. The rain might drip off into one specific spot. Let it fall off naturally. I just I don't. I don't want to ever, ever, ever be part of a homeowners association again, because while in theory, it's like uh, it's like communism or socialism. Yeah. In theory, fantastic. Looks really good on paper. (laughs) In practice. Oh, my God. 
these people aren't like you know. Uh, well, we put a we put an extra deck chair out back. No, nope, homeowners association came and got <laughs> you for it. There's a limit of four. There's a limit of four. If you're renting, that's one thing. But a homeowners association. No, I bought that home to buy that home and be the homeowner. I didn't buy it to join a group. To join a collective like the Borg for all the Star Trek fans out there, like Jake alluded to earlier, I would never, ever, ever want anyone to be able to tell me what to do with my property. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. You've bought that property, and now what? I guess, you know, homeowners association fees go to maintaining things, typically. That's what it would normally be. But then I think back to my friend in Jacksonville. Well, what are the fees that he's paying for if they're not mowing that yard and keeping it? Yeah. You, want, you want the yard to be, you know, three quarter inches exactly. You mow it. There you go. What are we paying you for? That's what I would always I I could see me being part of a homeowners association and I could see how it would go. It would probably end up in court, too. And I could see myself <laughs> asking a few times a week, what are we paying you for? We give you money. What do you use that money for other than to, you know, put stamps on uh, fines and mail them to people? Just do not, do not like the idea. Do not like it. Also, something I really don't like the idea of is when a member of our military is killed in action or otherwise, and it appears that a soldier in Afghanistan has been killed in what they're calling an insider attack. Corporal Joseph Maciel, 20 years old, died Saturday in the Tarin Kaut district in Afghanistan's Uruzgan province. Two other soldiers wounded in the attack, which is under investigation. Um, I'm not particularly sure where Uruzgan province is, so I'm going to have to look that up. But uh, he was assigned to 1st Battalion, 28th Infantry Regiment of the 3rd ID at Fort Benning. So over there in Afghanistan and you know, when I was in um, when I was in Regional Command North, we lost almost as many people to insider attacks as we did to Taliban and uh, you know Haqqani Network and all the rest of those guys. This is basically central Afghanistan, north of Kandahar is uh, where it would be. I'm um, uh, not recognizing any of the uh, city names in there. Chora, Panwa, Kasur is gone. Balag, uh, yeah, so kind of kind of just in the middle of the country. But those insider attacks, man, those were horrifying. Uh, there was one that happened right after we left a place where there was a German unit uh, cleaning their vehicles, I believe, after being out on a patrol. They had these, they had these giant, I don't even know what to call it. It was like a G.I. Joe-looking uh, armored vehicle that the Germans had, uh, motorized turrets on top and everything, very, very secure vehicle. They were uh, doing maintenance on it after coming back from outside the wire, and the uh, Afghan National Army training facility that was within Outpost North, where this took place, that was the name of it. It wasn't in a wasn't in a town. It was cut into the side of a mountain. Um, the the Afghan one of the Afghan soldiers over there just started shooting at him, killed like three people. I mean, it, it minutes after we left, and then of course we ended up going back, and you'd see the. Uh, uh, the 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 result of it just horrifying stuff, man, and it's something that needs to be considered because you've got a, a basically a program in Afghanistan where we are accepting former Taliban and terrorists and former uh, people who were doing whatever they could to kill Americans and our NATO allies in Afghanistan. We're now accepting them into uh, and have been for years. Hey. Come over, and if you turn in your weapons and you turn in everything, they can turn in their weapons. They can put on an ANA or AMP uniform. It's a National Army and National Police. They can do all of that, 
but they're not going to turn in their ideology. They're not going to turn in the way that they think. And that's why you have things like this happen. You also have what we were hearing about while we were up there, uh, the Taliban and other organizations paying these people. So essentially, if you if you were serving in the Afghan National Army, the Taliban would come with an offer to you like, hey, Jake, if you turn your guns on the NATO uh, forces there and kill as many as you can, we will give your family, you know, the equivalent of two million dollars U.S. And, you know, it doesn't take much to equal. Yeah, million we, we dealt with that there. in Iraq where every time we would take out someone and placing an IED, it was never any important person. It was always some poor farmer. Yeah, just uh, just the way it is, man. There's, uh, you know, when people talk about poor people within the United States, there are poor people within the United States. However, those poor people are better off than pretty much everybody except for your warlords, your your heroin uh, dealers and everybody like that over in Afghanistan, the heroin smugglers. There are very few people that uh, that are, are have anything. So when that offer comes through, you know, even if a guy's been trying to make ends meet by being, you know, a soldier or a policeman or something like that has gone through the training, you know, they'll realize I'm not going to make a ton of money doing this. Here's an easy way out. Uh, and an easy, not an easy way out. I mean, that's, uh, the guys, uh, typically are killed when they do that. Uh, if fire is re- returned. Um, but this is someone who now, if he survives, will probably be in prison for the last rest of his life or, may have already been executed because they don't really waste time over there. They're not too worried about, you know, sending people to, uh, to trials, the <laughs> Afghans. They're, they're a little bit more uh, likely to execute people for that. So um, this is a guy who had been deployed to Afghanistan since February, uh, a corporal in the Army. Uh, his decorations and awards include Bronze Star, Purple Heart, Army Achievement Medal, Afghanistan Campaign Medal. Uh, it looks as though... Quite possibly the Purple Heart and Bronze Star come from the incident where uh, where he was killed, but I'm not 100% certain about that. Uh, his uh, battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel David Connor, says Corporal Maciel was an excellent soldier, beloved by his teammates, and dedicated to our mission. Uh, rest in peace. Corporal Joseph Maciel, 20 years old, died Saturday in Tarankout dif- District in Afghanistan's Uruzgan Province. Uh, in what is called an insider attack. Two other soldiers were wounded in that attack. Again, Maciel was from 1st Battalion, 28th Infantry Regiment of the 3rd ID at Fort Benning, Georgia, from Task Force 128 Infantry, deployed in support of the 1st Security Force Assistance Brigade, which is a specialized unit of Army advisors deployed to train, advise, and assist Afghan military Yeah, just a horrible story and not how we want to end off the first segment here. So uh, I guess we will look at one more thing, and that is some good news, bad news situation coming from over in Thailand. A former Thai Navy SEAL, you know, some countries have uh, similar programs that they name after ours, just like with Rangers, all that stuff, uh, died over the weekend during the uh, attempt to rescue these uh, Thai soccer kids that apparently walked into a cave system with their coach, and then it rained rained heavily, flooded, kids don't know how to swim, stuck in the cave nine days before they even located them and knew and figured out that they were alive. Multinational military uh, and civilian organizations over there trying to figure it out. Uh, as a diver myself and as a certified rescue diver, I was trying to explain to people this weekend how difficult it would be for me 
to make it out of that cave with assistance. So with another diver and having gone in there, getting back out, it, it would be incredibly difficult. These kids don't know how to swim. So I was wondering how feasible it was to get them out or if they'd just have to wait until the waters went down a couple months from now. Well, it looks like they've actually gotten a few of those young men out of there. Uh, the coach, I guess, will be the last one in. Also, a lot of interesting conversations going on about the coach where like, hey, why did he put these children in this kind of danger? Why would you walk into a flood uh, cave that you knew could flood? Apparently, they've been in there before, but it seems that the general population in Thailand is pretty supportive of the coach and and the fact that he kept them alive for those nine days afterwards uh, kept them you know together made sure uh, everything was still going on so good news that they're over there and yes we do have members of our military over there advising and taking part in the rescue efforts i saw a picture of what looked like uh navy divers or seals it was hard to tell they didn't really show who they were it was just a picture and you were like all right those are definitely americans those guys also look like uh, Navy special operations, whether divers or SEALs. But good to hear that those kids are, uh, you know, getting out. And they've got a few few left to get out of there. But they've got, I believe, I believe they're coming up on half of them being the, out. So the fifth is, one just got released. The fifth one just got out. And I think there were like 12 of them in there or something yeah. like that. So we're getting uh, to the halfway point. Well, we're nowhere near the halfway point now. We're at about the one-third point. We've still got great interviews coming up, including in just a moment, we're going to speak to retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Frank Labuti of Huntington, Long Island, a place where I lived for years before moving down here to do this job. We're going to talk to him about his career in the Marine Corps, what it's like transitioning after uh, such a story, decorated career, and the difficulties that even those three-star generals have when transitioning to veteran status. Later on in the show, Tom Porter from IAVA. It's a good, good Monday. So stick around. We'll be right back with the morning briefing. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing, brought to you by Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. It's our slogan, and it's what we do. Our team is comprised entirely of those who know what it's like to have worn the uniform, and just importantly, know what it's like to have taken it off for that last time. That's why they're working every day to put out fantastic content for you in the form of videos, audio like this show and our podcast selection, news articles, informational pieces, links to benefits that you probably didn't even know about that are right in your backyard. All of that is available to you at ConnectingVets.com, and it's also available on social media. It's the best way to be kept abreast of what we're doing. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps and a gentleman who rose to some pretty high heights within the Corps, putting on that third star as a lieutenant general before he ended up retiring. A native of Huntington, New York, which is actually where I lived prior to moving down here, please welcome to the show Lieutenant General Retired Frank Labuti. General, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Eric, and I, I want to thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart for the opportunity to say hello to you and the audience. I'm, I'm very proud to be with you and uh, proud to be the leader of Renaissance Global Services, a service-disabled vet-owned small business out of New Jersey. 
And we are going to talk all about that business that you're talking about right now. But first, let's go over the Cliffs notes. Obviously, as a three-star in the Marine Corps, you had a lengthy career. You went a lot of places. You did a lot of things. Give us the basics of your career. You know, we know where you're from, Huntington, I just mentioned. But when did you join and what did you do during your career in the Marine Corps? I joined the Marine Corps uh, out of uh, the Citadel, graduated from the Citadel in 1966, uh, commissioned in 1966, went on to the basic school, and my first assignment was Vietnam as an infantry platoon commander, uh, then back to the United States at OCS. I was also a company commander at Quantico, and then out to the uh, West Coast, where I was part of an amphibious strike force as the combat cargo officer. Then back to Camp Lejeune as a company commander, infantry company commander, and then back to school at Quantico, and then from there to headquarters Marine Corps in charge of the assignment of enlisted Marines, then to um, the National War College. Had a wonderful experience uh, as the aide-de-camp to the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General P.X. Kelly, which was a great learning experience, I must say. Um I then uh, went back to Camp uh, Pendleton, where I commanded a Marine Expeditionary Unit and the 1st Recon Battalion, and uh, from there back to uh, Washington to work on General Powell's personal staff during that tour of duty, 90 to 91, or 92, excuse me, um, I was selected for Brigadier General. The highlight of the two years working for General Powell was I was part of the U.S. delegation that went back and forth to Vietnam to work with the POW MIA issue. Uh, my first assignment as a one-star was at Central Command. I was there about three weeks and got assigned as a Joint Task Force Commander and the first commander to go in to Somalia, and I did that for approximately six months, then back to Central Command in Florida, was there the rest of my two years on that assignment, then assigned as the Commanding General of the 1st Marine Division, uh, from there to Korea as the War Plan Strategy Officer for the U.S. and the Joint Command in South Korea. Uh, from there, got my third star, went to Okinawa, commanded the 3rd Marine Expeditionary Force, and my last tour of duty was in Hawaii, where I was the Commanding General of the Marines in the Pacific and the Commanding General of the Marines in the Central Command, which is all the Arabian Gulf, and also Commanding General of Marine Bases Pacific. And then I retired in October of 2001 after 35 years. 35 years is a long time, General. And we've talked to people who have served that long and risen to great heights, whether in the enlisted or officer ranks. And some of them have difficulty adjusting to civilian life because, you know, it's been your life for over three decades. As an adult, really, the Marine Corps is all that you knew. When you think back to that transition period, when you took off that uniform for the last time, what do you remember most about it? Was it a difficult time for you? It was a challenging time for me and my family, uh, given my uh, leadership philosophy and approach towards uh, problem solving. But I, I found, as you probably know, when I left the Marine Corps, uh, in short order, I was hired by the Department of Defense to to lead an organization which was the child of the Homeland Security Department. It was Homeland Defense. I did that for several months and then uh, was asked by uh, the commissioner of NYPD to be the head of the Bureau of Counterterrorism in New York City. And the guy there, of course, was Ray Kelly, and the mayor was Bloomberg. Um, 
And then back to your question. So transition is always difficult because you're in a new environment. But what I learned to do, as I have with Renaissance Global Services, the company I'm privileged to lead now, uh, the leadership traits and principles stay the same. And my philosophy is uh, you need to treat your employees as I try to treat my troops with respect and dignity, try to understand the mission at hand, and then execute that mission smartly. And that is something that, of course, the Marine Corps is known for, and it's what Marines are often known for in their civilian lives as well. As you mentioned, working as a deputy police commissioner in New York City, uh, a difficult job there, and then working for the Department of Homeland Security as Undersecretary for Information Analysis and Infrastructure Protection. I mean, this is, you stayed busy after you got out. How important do you think that is for a military retiree to not just kind of sit back and let those retirement checks roll in, but to still be out there doing in something that you you have a passion for i think it's critical and for me the motivation was always there to do what was right for my community and my country as i'm trying to do now with renaissance global uh which is all about uh, executing the job in support of my two lines of business but trying very very hard to find qualified vets to come in and uh, take take charge of their area of responsibility and excel in what they're doing General, if there were one piece of advice that you could offer to the officer, the enlisted, particularly that senior person, that retiree who's done 20-plus years in uniform, one piece of advice that you could offer them that you would think would benefit them most as they transition to veteran status, what would that be? Uh, In simple terms, is follow your heart. Don't take a job that offers the most money. Take a job that motivates you, puts fire in the belly, gets you up in the morning, and keeps you focused on doing good things for the company, your community, and the country. And that's that's what motivated me in terms of actions I took after I left the Marine Corps. Spoken like Follow a true... your heart. Do, do, do the right thing for the right reason. Always respect the choices in terms of what's right for your family as well. Um, most folks uh, have a pretty good resume as their senior officers. And what I used to tell them, as I tell my employees in renaissance global i said that you got to wake up in the morning ready to go to work Uh, you got to wake up and take two pills one pill is called wisdom take that wisdom pill and the next pill you need to take is the humility pill which isn't about being weak but it's about being a good listener particularly in terms of your employees Spoken like a true Marine, and we are speaking to a true Marine, retired Lieutenant General Frank Labuti, who has now moved on and is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Renaissance Global Services. General, tell us exactly what Renaissance Global is and what your team does. Again, we're a service-disabled veteran small business out of New Jersey. Um, We have about 24 folks in the company. We have two business lines, one in support of uh, utilities, and I'll come back to that, and the other in support of pharmaceutical companies. Uh, In terms of the pharmaceutical approach, we provide project managers in support of small to medium-sized facility improvements at various sites across New Jersey and New England. And in the utility side, we provide uh, construction inspectors. uh, In plain English, it's gas pipeline inspectors in New York and Long Island. Um, We are also working very diligently with some partners in the pharmaceutical business uh, and also a recruiting organization, which I'm very proud to share with you, to try to identify 
veterans that we can identify, engage, train, and place in various uh, organizations within the pharma communities. Let me ask you about that. What do you think the veteran place is within those communities? What type of veteran is it that you're looking for for placement there? Yeah, well, I'm obviously high on veterans overall. These are battle-tested, hard chargers. They they come with honor and dignity and integrity, uh, and they're disciplined in terms of leadership. So um, what we're trying to do here is not simply find young men and women from all the services who can do project management work, but if they're qualified, we will certainly compete them for the job. But many of these folks have been in leadership positions as sergeants, staff sergeants, gunnery sergeants, second lieutenants, captains, and so forth. They would be superb at handling any number of leadership or management jobs, um, everything from uh, organizing uh, security around a facility, um, painting, grass cutting, uh, management jobs at the middle level where they could supervise 10, 20, 30, 50, or 100 people in doing work around a facility to make uh, them really engaged in the effort in a way that would make them feel proud. Do you think there's something that the veteran community offers that's missing within the civilian community when it comes to management? I mean, I know right on the Renaissance Global website, it says project management with military discipline. Is that military discipline something that you found lacking in the civilian and even the government world as you've worked in that? That's a tricky question, and i got to be careful in how I respond (laughs) because I I don't want to ever say something that is... uh, uh, emotional and not particularly true. The, the, the civilian sector has got some great strength and leadership and management across the board. But uh, my feeling about the, the young men and the women who come out of the service, uh, they've grown up in a system that demands excellence, that requires keyword teamwork, that uh, is about integrity and telling it like it is, And as I say, uh, at all ranks, what I'm going to say applies. It it is smarter to be the coach than the critic in terms of executing one's mission. And the other thing we've learned in the military is um, if something goes wrong, get angry and get over it. Stay focused on the mission. Continue to do a good job, as I try to share with all of the employees in Renaissance Global Services. We're speaking to retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Frank Labuti. He is the president and chief executive officer of Renaissance Global Services. General, when you talk about management and you talk about these positions that you're putting veterans in through Renaissance Global, there are some people, like you said, the rank doesn't matter, but there are those. Maybe you're your person who got out as a corporal in the Marine Corps after doing one tour, a petty officer, third class in the Navy, something like that, who who may not have gotten the management experience in the military, but Military management experience tends to be, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for here? In the military, we tend to have more responsibility at a younger age than in many, if not any, other job fields. Is that something that you think people should consider when uh, maybe thinking, well, should I or should I not look yeah. at a management position? A- absolutely. I, I speak from time to time at various groups in the civilian sector and the private industry sector, and I speak uh, loudly and as clearly as I can emphasizing how veterans bring a certain unique quality to the game, so to speak. Uh, 
as I mentioned earlier, these are people who, and you alluded to, have had leadership and management responsibilities since they were young NCOs. Uh, they know how to deal with issues and problems, and more importantly, they know how to deal with people. Um, and I have the old expression that wisdom doesn't come with rank. Uh, I, when I was a young lieutenant, the smartest guys around me were the sergeants, and I listened to them and tried to be a good listener relative to learning my skills as a platoon commander. I tried to do the same thing at Renaissance Global. And that is certainly a key to positive leadership. Every great leader, particularly within the officer corps that I met in the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Army, having worked with all branches, each one of them talked about similar things, about listening to those enlisted leaders as they were coming up, and the even the junior enlisted and finding out what they were yeah. thinking. Is that something that you try to do at Renaissance Global as far as uh, the team there? Tell us a little bit about how the team works. Absolutely. Uh, daily contacts, uh, either from me to them, uh, from my my other supervisors to the people working on the job, I call everybody on their birthday. We take them to uh, baseball games in New York. I'm a Mets fan and a U, U, uh, United States uh, of America supporter of the great team of New York, the New York Giants. So we take them on fishing trips. Uh, we connect on a regular basis, uh, and we just chat from time to time to get feedback on how things are going. So, you know, um, it, it, the leadership traits don't change. Uh, it's all about focusing on the mission, taking care of your employees, treating them like partners, not subordinates. That's what's central. When people feel that leadership trusts them and that they have something to offer, not just plugging in in the morning and leaving at night, then you create a team, a team of excellence. And that's what I try to stress at Renaissance Global. Renaissance Global is a service-disabled, veteran-owned small business, and we are speaking to the president and CEO, retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Frank Labuti. General, when other people are looking to go in, maybe starting a business of their own and be in management there, maybe take a position like a president or CEO position for the first time, what are some recommendations you would give to them as to how to approach that as someone who's had such success uh, in so many jobs after leaving the Corps? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, when I was transitioning out of Homeland Security and not sure what I was going to do, um, I called a old buddy of mine who was in the Army, and uh, he said to me, uh, Frank, take out a piece of paper, and on one side of the paper, write down all of the skills that you think you have that you're good at doing. And on the other side of the same piece of paper, write down all the things you think you want to do and then try to combine what you think your skill sets are with job opportunities that you think you'd like to do. Um, and that helped me transition. Uh, you, as I said and alluded to earlier, you have to find the center of gravity in your life for yourself, your family, and then decide what you want to do uh, for the rest of your life or at least as long as you want to work. The uh, worst thing you can do is uh, take a job that offers a lot of money with a highfalutin title, and it really doesn't pull on your heartstrings. you got to find something that you really enjoy doing, and that's my advice to people transitioning. Now, in terms of the tactical side of all of that, you got to put a good res resume together, and I tell people when they do that, the first thing in your resume, you have to identify, again, 
What do you want to do? That is certainly good advice. Now, also, as you are now leading your team at Renaissance Global Services as the president and CEO, what is your plan for the future of the company? What do the next few years hold for Renaissance Global Services? Well, we'll continue to do uh, at Renaissance Global what we're doing now, placing uh, two, three, and four people at various sites within the pharmaceutical uh, arena. Uh, We hope that we can transition into doing construction management. We are also charging hard and fast over veteran uh, administration opportunities. The VA offers various opportunities that we think are vital to improving and broadening the scope of what we do at Renaissance. In fact, we're, we're engaged right now at refining a response to a VA proposal, which we are fairly sanguine about, and uh, time will tell, but we're working hard with the two other companies as a teaming agreement and a joint venture. And so I'm excited about all that, but that, that's the future. The future is uh, continue to do what we're doing, increase our numbers, in terms of project management and work for the for the utility companies, look at construction management where the opportunity exists and the risks are not too high, and then look at VA contracts. These things that Renaissance Global Services works within are industries that will always be a necessity. I mean, they're in many cases, they are actual utilities. Do you think that's a good reason for people to want to get involved in those industries? Because those jobs are always going to be there, and there's certainly a place where the uh, the veteran can fit within those spaces. Absolutely correct. And and again, you know, I, I tend to think of veterans, uh, men and women of all ranks and positions and experience, as first leaders and managers, and there's a big difference between a leader and a manager, but mo- most of the folks that I've had the pleasure of working with and leading have been, in fact, leaders. Uh, the management skills are skills that have to be developed along the way once you transition, but they're, they're not as challenging as one would think. If you're well-grounded in how to treat people and how to focus on your mission, you're going to do just fine. Well, one person who's doing just fine is Lieutenant General Frank Labuti, United States Marine Corps, retired. General, if people are listening to this interview and saying, boy, Renaissance Global Services sounds interesting and it's something they want to find out more about or a place that they might be even interested in applying for a position, where do they go to find out more about the organization? They can go to our website, www.renaissanceglobalservices.com. Give us a call, give us a shout, send us a note and we'll respond to you. And that's all you need to do. Again, that website, renaissanceglobalservices.com. Our guest has been retired Lieutenant General, United States Marine Corps, Frank Labuti, who I knew I liked from the beginning and couldn't quite put a finger on it, but then I figured out he's a Mets fan. So now I know why I like you, sir. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, I say, I say my prayers every night, and I say an extra rosary for the Mets. Uh, uh, they need it this year. <laughs> oh, but I... I appreciate the opportunity. The company Renaissance Global appreciates the opportunity to say hello and share our views. Um, And it's just a delight for me to meet you. I hope maybe someday uh, soon we can uh, meet face to face and uh, I can buy you a cup of coffee and we can talk about Huntington. That sounds good. Lieutenant General Frank Labuti, United States Marine Corps, retired president and CEO of Renaissance Global Services. And you know, Jake, 
it's always fascinating to me to hear from someone who reached such great heights within the military, retired as, let's say, a Master Chief Petty Officer in the Navy like Jim Hurt, who we talked to a few weeks ago, or a Lieutenant General like Frank Labuti, and hear them talk about the difficulties they have when transitioning. I think it surprises a lot of people that those people who were so successful in uniform oftentimes have such difficulties getting out. Does it ever shock you to hear someone like a three-star Marine Corps general talk about the difficulties in moving to the civilian world? It does a little bit because we always assume that, oh, they'll get some contractor job or, hey, they retired as a you know four-star general. They can just sit on their retirement pay for the rest of their life. But yeah. you know, but there's that old thing of people who retire and don't work die quicker. Oh, yeah. So, Almost immediately in many cases. Yeah, so, they, always, so they, they still have to find something to do. And if they can't find that immediate contractor job they can struggle yeah and you know what even if you do get that job that's not everything there can be other issues you know one of the things that i think we forget about being in the military and i i certainly f- realized it when i got out is that social structures are essentially built into the military you've got a command you've got people that you work with who end up being the people that you spend your time with Uh, if you don't have a good relationship outside of work with the people at your command it can oftentimes lead to you know not the greatest time for you uh, while you're doing your thing wherever you are then you get out and you move to someplace else and it's like you know you're kind of forced to be friends with people in the military you get out you got to find them on your own you got to find the things that you like because the thing that you liked and that you all did together the military thing doesn't exist anymore you know yeah i mean it i struggle with that myself cuz i'm i don't know if you know this about me if you can't tell i'm somewhat of an antisocial guy so it was in the our military it was good they forced me to get out there and i had to get make friends with the people i work with like you just said but now it's like where do I go to make friends? I don't know. Yeah. What are you going to do? And, you know, you, you you just, you got your things that you like. And sometimes that's like, I, you know, I like the mixed martial arts. I, the UFC fights were this weekend. We weren't planning on being, we came back from our vacation a little bit earlier, our little mini vacation a little bit earlier than planned like a day or two before. Wasn't planning on being here, but, you know, I, I used to have like six, seven people show up for the fights at my place in New York. Down here, I think the most I've ever had at the house is like four people. You were there for for it and i mean it's like i've got things that i like but there's no guarantee that people around me or the people that i meet will like the same things you know it's kind of a kind of a a crapshoot basically and it's the same whether you had you know one chevron or three stars on your arm doesn't matter yeah it's same thing and it's especially hard for someone like me who has very specific interests like there's not many people who are into horror movies and heavy metal and all that stuff to the level that i am (laughs) i think that there are i think you just got to find them that's the thing where are they i don't know we'll have to we'll have to look facebook group or something like that is there a reddit thread (laughs) that how all of this works all right well you're listening to the morning briefing i am eric dame he is jake hughes our thanks to lieutenant general frank labuti and very cool to find out that he's from huntington and actually my wife got her uh, engagement ring resized at the jeweler that his family owns in huntington so pretty neat little connection there and another connection is coming up in just a moment as tom porter from iava joins us in studio to talk about the latest and greatest items that iava iraq and afghanistan veterans of america are focusing on you're listening to the morning briefing here on intercom radios connecting vets.com connecting vets every day back after this Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets 
every day. Online and all over social media, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing, brought to you by Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. It's our slogan because it's what we do. Our team of veterans, and yes, each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn that uniform and to have taken it off for the last time. Each one of them is working diligently, that means hard, every day to get you the information that you should have, the information that you want to have, the information you need to have, and they're doing it all at ConnectingVets.com. You can also follow us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is a legislative director for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, a.k.a. IAVA. Boy, there's a lot of letters in a row. He is Tom Porter and joins us now to talk about the latest happenings on Capitol Hill in regards to IAVA. Tom, good morning. How are you today? Outstanding. Good morning, Eric. Uh, Glad to be here with you again. Yeah. And you know this, uh, as everybody gets uh, that post-holiday hangover off of their shoulders, starting to do that this morning. Everybody headed back to work who got a few days off towards the end of the week. IAVA doesn't really take many days off. You guys have too much going on to take days off. One of the things I know that's been big news for you lately, it's been a big focus, burn pit legislation. Of course, IAVA was instrumental in the legislation co-introduced by Representatives Tulsi Gabbard and Brian Mast, both Army veterans. Uh, What can you tell us about the current status of that legislation and where it's going and and how fast it's moved? I'm glad you asked about that, Eric. This has uh, been making tremendous impact. Uh, So many people want to address this issue. As you know, and many of your listeners, so many uh, veterans have been uh, exposed to airborne toxins and the, uh, the, the toxic uh, chemicals from burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so uh, what, what we've seen is a problem in that not, not many people know about the burn pit registry at the VA on their website. And so we're trying to add accountability at the Department of Defense so that they, uh, at each periodic health assessment for each member of the military, that they get asked if they've been exposed and where and what symptoms they have, and then they get entered into that burn pit registry. So the legislation that you brought up uh, was introduced in the House a few weeks ago, just about five weeks ago, and now we've got 69 co-sponsors in the House. Bipartisan, evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats. It's a huge news. Uh, I testified before the House Veterans Committee on this legislation just a couple weeks ago. Uh, and then we're going to be talking on a roundtable in the in Congress this week, later this week. And then huge news, yes, uh, last week, uh, we had the Senate companion bill introduced by Senator Amy Klobuchar and, and Senator Dan Sullivan. Uh, Senator Klobuchar is an expert on the issue, and Dan Sullivan is, is, a, is a Marine uh, post 9-11, uh, and he knows the impact of these, uh, these burn pits and airborne toxins. So great news. And it would seem, you know, when I heard about it being introduced, uh, this legislation, it would seem to be a no-brainer, and it sounds like Congress is looking at it in a similar way. Has there been any pushback towards the legislation that you've noticed, or has it been all good news? It's been great news. Uh, I don't know anybody that's opposed to it. I think the only, only issue we, somebody might have is that it's not doing everything they want to do all at once. Um, we're gonna, We're working on multiple fronts on this, and so... 
Uh, Senator Klobuchar's got uh, other legislation also that hits on this issue that we also support that creates a center of excellence at the VA to study uh, these issues and begin to treat veterans. And that was just passed by the Senate just the other day. So huge news on multiple fronts on burn pits. A lot of people are getting to know how big this problem is and want to do something about it. Hearing that Congress is acting on this and moving forward is great. How about DOD and the military? I know that's another aspect of this that people have been focusing on. Have they been uh, cooperative as far as, you know, making sure that we know everybody who was exposed to them? Or is it you know, like many things are with uh, with DOD, like pulling teeth? It, it, is, it is difficult at times because uh, if you were to Google, try to Google uh, the locations of burn pits, uh, there's, there doesn't appear to be any uh, government document that's publicly available that lets people know, the public know, how widespread these were. And yeah. so there are some veterans groups that are trying to compile the, that, that on their own by accepting uh, uh, information submitted by veterans. Um, but we'd like more transparency out of the DOD. And, and, of course, the purpose of this legislation was to add some accountability at DOD for this issue. Yeah, and there has been uh, a lot of conversation about who's overall responsible for the burn pits. Is it contractors that were operating them? Is it the military? Listen, DOD is overall in charge of those military facilities. If there's a contractor that they instructed to do something, if the military told them to do it, if DOD told them to do it, in a lot of people's eyes, DOD is uh, the party responsible for it. Is that how IAVA views? Use it that it's DOD's responsibility to. Well, that's apparently the way it's it's fleshing out. As you may be aware, there was some lawsuits uh, uh, on some of the con- large contractors involved, but I think a court recently uh, found that it was ultimately DOD that's responsible for that. And right. So, so that that apparently is the is is the situation, and so yeah. we just need DOD to be accountable for this, and we need we need the veterans to be treated, we need military to be treated. Uh, you send somebody over there, they're happy to go. Uh, we're all happy to go. It's just that if there's injuries that 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 uh, that come of that deployment, treat us when we get back. And that is the key, you know, that we need to take care of those veterans who are affected by those things. I was lucky enough to be in a place where I don't know if we had a burn pit on the base that I was on. I don't believe so. I never saw it. I did see some as I traveled around the region, but there are a lot of people who were living and working day in, day out around chemicals that were being burned, uh, biological waste that was being burned, metal that was being burned, all these chemicals getting out. And this affects a a large number of those who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, just like those who served around burn pits in places like Vietnam and Desert Storm and and all previous conflicts, correct? Right, right. And and so a lot of folks uh, are under the impression that that if you weren't the the soldier or the service member that's actually dumping stuff into the burn pit, then you weren't exposed to a burn pit. So many burn pits are around. They're from large, large military bases uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan to the to the uh, small combat outposts of you know ten guys. Right. And so a lot of times, you, well, usually you don't have the choice to go run your recycling to the recycling plant in Jalalabad. No. You just don't have that opportunity. And right? you can't take the soda cans or rip it cans uh, to put them <laughs> into the cash machine to put them into the uh, the the return machine to get your nickel. That's not happening there either. Right. And and. What paint a picture? It's it's everything that you consume at, at at war, whether it be the ten plastic bottles, water bottles a day that you consume, to human and medical waste. Uh, we had one of our members that was standing with us at our press conference uh, introducing the bill. Um, she is seriously injured. Um, she believes she's dying from her exposures. Mm. Her job in the army 
in Iraq. Although her specialty was food prep, her job in Iraq was to ent- uh, empty the porta john waste every day. She'd drag the bins oh. out, dump it with jet fuel, light it on fire, stir it with her e-tool, and repeat over and over until she oh. had a brick where she would then have to bury in the sand. That sounds like the worst job in Afghanistan or Iraq. In the world. Yeah, I yeah, mean, so. like, <laughs> go ask the infantry guys who are out getting shot at if they'd rather be doing that or, or doing that job, burning refuse out of porta-potties. Uh, I think it might be a tough decision for some of them. Yeah, you just, you just you know, although there's no definitive link between these uh, exposures and some of these uh, symptoms, I just can't see how you you burn human waste with jet fuel every day and not have something go wrong. Yeah, you know? and... and even if let's let's say allow me to play devil's advocate let's say this individual that her health concerns are not related to the burn pit specifically find that out do the research and look into it and see what could have caused this is it you know of course we've all heard the term pre-existing condition a lot over the last couple of years but was this something that would have happened regardless or was this something that may have been jump started by a burn pit or caused totally by a burn pit until we know who was around them and until we do more research into the the difficulties they can cause, we're not going to be able to even do that, are we, Tom? We're not going to be able to figure out what effects they have if we can't look into it. Exactly right. And that's that's why just not enough research has been done uh, and, and we need to get that moving. And we also need to be treating veterans. And so I know that the VA is treating these on a case-by-case basis. There's there's no uh, blanket determination of a disability with regards to the exposure. And, and, and that, on that point, there's a lot of misinformation that needs to be addressed as well because so many military think that just because they were deployed to these areas that they automatically get are eligible for a disability hmm. uh, when they get back. And that's simply not the truth. And even military doctors uh, will, will say the same thing. Yeah, and there are, of course, a lot of... A lot of misconceptions, and I don't know who I lay more blame on, whether it's the individual or the military. I mean, when you're getting out, I, I hear people talk about you know not knowing anything about what's available to them at the VA. How would you not look into that? Why would that not be something that you'd, you'd check and you just get out and be like, well, I kind of assumed that they might be able to do something for me. You got to do the research, but the military also needs to do a better job of, of letting people know when they get out. And that's something that I know a lot of the VSOs, including IAVA, have also focused on, and that's improving the transition programs to make sure that everyone is as aware as they can be of these programs. Again, can lead a horse to water, can't make him drink. That old saying is very true. You're going to give all this information out to everybody. There are those who are not going to pick it up. They don't care. It's going to go on. But when it comes to all of that, whether it's VA benefits regarding burn pits or just your your regular VA benefits that you're allotted uh, for a certain number of years when you get out, it's important that we make people aware of all these things, isn't it? it, it absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, you... You, t- you touched on an important issue is so many times when people are getting out of the military, they just want to just want to yep. be done and they're not p- paying attention to the PowerPoint presentations uh, and, and the transition program. So it's important for number one, that, that they be informed, but they also that they're paying attention and that we need to do all we can to improve those programs and, and uh, setting them up for success. Now, for those folks that, that aren't aware of their programs of programs of VA at DOD community programs, uh, you know, we, that, that leads me to, we've got a very valuable set of folks called our rapid response referral program or RIP, right. our RIP team at, at IAVA. They are master's level counselors. They help veterans of all generations for free, uh, help veterans understand their benefits at VA, 
help them through uh, financial difficulties, everything under the sun. And and there are, there's almost 9,000 veterans that our RIP team has helped to this date. So really, really valuable program. And uh, did I just hear you correctly that that assistance is not just available to Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, but all veterans of all generations, whether they uh, deployed to a war zone or not? Yes, yes. It's, it's really valuable. We we try to help as many veterans as we can with the resources that we have. And, you know, for those people out there, and we know that they exist, we hear from them on social media occasionally. Why do Iraq and Afghanistan veterans need their own organization? They are just doing it for them. They're in it for themselves. Well, there you go. The IAVA RIP teams, they're not just in it for the IAVA uh, and the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. They're doing it for everybody who's out there, anybody who needs that assistance. So that's really good to hear about. If people want to get in touch with one of those uh, RIP team personnel and find out you know, what sort of uh, assistance can be offered, how do they go about doing that? Well, the easiest way is just, just to Google IAVA and, and Rapid Response Referral Program or RRRP, and you'll get the contact information there. And that is the way to do it. We're speaking with Tom Porter, Legislative Director from IAVA. That's Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Tom served in Afghanistan, I believe, around the same time that I did. We kind of overlapped, although we were in different uh, different regions. Before we went live today, we we're actually uh, remembering <laughs> remembering a satellite uplink that both of us worked on doing something. So uh, this is... A very interesting time for veterans, Tom, legislatively. As we just talked about, we've got, of course, the uh, burn pit legislation. Good news. Great news. There's also bad news. The bad news is we haven't had a full-time director over at the VA, a full-time secretary of the VA, for several months now. After the department had been seen as the kind of shining light for the administration, then, oh boy, did the did the House of Cards come tumbling down. Secretary Shulkin was removed or resigned or whatever happened. Don't care. We are now at the precipice, it looks like, of a new secretary of the VA in Robert Wilkie. His uh, confirmation hearing on Capitol Hill that took place uh, last week, uh, or was it the week before that? See, this holidays throw me off. But anyway, the week before that is when it was. Yeah, uh, the Wilkie confirmation hearing seemed to go very well. All the senators seemed to uh, uh, be putting him forward and saying, like, all right, you're going to get confirmed. Is this uh, a good thing? Do you think it's important that we have that leadership there? And how does IAVA view Secretary Wilkie as the uh, the likely incoming secretary of the VA? Right. We, we were at the uh, confirmation hearing over in the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee uh, he seemed to be very well prepared. Uh, he had definitely done his homework. Um, he had been meeting with uh, with senators on the committee and el- elsewhere leadership uh, for the couple weeks prior. So he had addressed a lot of their concerns before that hearing. Um, and so uh, not not too ma- many fireworks at the hearing. Yeah. Uh, he addressed many of their concerns. We were a little bit disappointed that he didn't touch on uh, more of our top priorities, uh, like burn pits, like like reforming the the VA to to, to serve women better. Uh, to, to defend the GI Bill from cuts, uh, but we expect to get those answers uh, later, and we know that the uh, the uh, the vote on his nomination is coming, uh, supposed to come tomorrow in in committee. Um, but this is critically needed, as you mentioned. There there is there's been a lack of stability at the top of the VA for a while now, and veterans expect more. Um, they expect more, and to 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 carry through all the sorely needed reforms that need to happen at VA. You need leadership. Yeah, You can't just depend on on the actings all over the department. You need the guy at the top. You do. And since Secretary Shulkin uh, left office, uh, again, <laughs> removed, resigned, doesn't matter. He's not there anymore. That's the point. Uh, it's been kind of a, uh, 
I don't know if I want to say a disaster, but there's been a lot of questions about, I mean, there was a lawsuit filed by, uh, uh, you know, veteran organizations that didn't like uh, how Wilkie was appointed as acting secretary of the VA, said that it went against the rules for the VA. Uh, VSOs, like, I know AMVETS was pretty vocal about saying, like, yeah, that's true, but this lawsuit isn't solving. It's become bit of a fire point within the veteran community where people are now viewing this uh, the VA as a battleground the privatization the whether it's the conservative veteran the liberal veteran everybody's got their own idea of what the VA should be politically and I think they're kind of missing the point that the VA is something that uh, whatever you think it should be, it is something right now that only works best when it has that leadership in place. Uh, it looks like he's going to be put into uh, that position. What would IAVA like Robert Wilkie to start on? What's the number one important thing that you think he needs to address over at the VA? Well, so so much of this is implementing the, the huge legislation that's been passed in the last year. Hmm. I mean, that's that's a big job right there. The Mission Act that was just passed into law that reforms the, the Veterans Health Administration. Um, that included actually a big, uh, huge component of our uh, Deborah Sampson Act for women veterans. Right. Uh, the peer-to-peer uh, -peer counseling, that's big. That, that's got to be implemented um, all those reforms, the uh, the Accountability Act that was passed into law last year that allows the secretary to uh, to fire uh, bad performing employees, the uh, the other huge legislation that passed last year that uh, reforms the disability claims uh, appeals process. All those things were recently passed, and you need a lot of energy and vision at the top to implement all of those reforms. Yeah, uh, and then we're looking at all the other additional priorities of ours that we've been talking about: the burn pits and the defending the GI Bill from cuts and abuse, uh, implementing reforms for women veterans, uh, ca cannabis uh, use for uh, medical use for veterans. All these things need vision and strength and, and, and uh, leverage and, and to be able to carry all these things through. You know, the cannabis issue is one that I was having a conversation with a family member up at the 4th of July, someone who's not a pro-cannabis person, but even that family member, a relative of mine, was saying it's kind of insane now that it's recreationally legal in several places, including right here in Washington, D.C., but we still can't get the VA to be doing uh, much research on it because of you know the federal rules and laws and regulations on it. And it's interesting that you bring up implementing the legislative items that have been passed. How uh, frustrating is it to you, I'm sure, as a legislative director for IAVA, and we're speaking to Tom Porter from that organization, that so many people think once a bill gets through, gets passed into law, there you go, that's it, mission accomplished, game over, everything's done, right? Wrong, right, Tom? You're exactly right. Uh, that, that just, that, that's just the start of it, I mean, because you need mountains to move in these, these agencies to implement all these things. You need fundings. A lot of the times... Congress doesn't allocate the appropriate level of funding uh, for these measures. And that's one of the things that we've uh, seen playing out uh, now with the Mission Act. Uh, Congress needs to appropriate the money to, to match all these reforms. And then you've got these massive, um, uh, very detailed and extensive rulemaking processes that actually establish all these programs. And that's a whole inside baseball thing that, that, uh, that is very extensive and time-consuming. How important do you think it is for people who are interested? Here's something like the Mission Act and go like, oh, that's great. Hear that it was passed. Oh, fantastic. 
How important do you think is it for people to pay attention to what happens after that, to make sure that it's implemented in the right way? Is that the only way that we can make sure that it is for individuals and organizations like IAVA to keep track of what's going on in that process? And if so, how do we do so? How does the average veteran find out what's going on with the Mission Act after it's been passed? It's it's so important, and it's it's nearly impossible for the average uh veteran uh, remember the public to keep track of this stuff unless they, they they're they're uh, using all of their 24 hours a day to, to monitor this that's why it's so important to be a member of a vso a veteran service organization uh and all the big ones including iava we, we watch these things in washington and we uh, keep in touch with the members of congress and the uh, federal officials that are in charge of carrying out these rulemakings to implement the legislation really really important because uh, so many of these things are are are, are uh, under the control of who's ever in charge in the White House and who's ever in charge at the VA or the other federal agencies, and then they go through these rulemaking processes where so many different uh, alternatives can be developed, and it takes people that are diligent uh, and paying attention to the details uh, to be able to uh, to ensure that the, the 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 right policies are implemented that help vets the most. And that's really one of the greatest things. There's a lot of great things that the VSO is doing. Just talking about the RIP team that, that IAVA has offering assistance to people, that's fantastic. But the folks that are in the nation's capital, the state capitals, keeping an eye on veteran legislation like you are, uh, that's an incredibly valuable service that the VSOs do, I think, to be able to, as you said, if you've got a job, you've got a family, you're not going to be able to keep track of all this stuff that's going on with the Mission Act. You might have just heard, oh, yeah, it got passed through and everything like that. Beyond that, what are you going to be able to do? Well, lucky for you, there are people like Tom Porter who are sitting there watching all of those things. And Tom, as you look out to the near future, what do you see as the next big things coming down the pipe legislatively that affect veterans uh, beyond burn pits, of course, which is still going on, and the Mission Act? What else is on the horizon? Well, you touched on a little bit earlier. It's uh, something that's really important to us and a lot of veterans is, uh, as, you, as you know, uh, VA uh, will not uh, do the research on the medical benefits of, of cannabis. Um, and so we've, uh, we've backed really important new legislation uh, called the VA Medicinal Cannabis Research Act, um, passed out of the House Veterans Committee unanimously a few weeks ago. This, this directs the VA to research on the, sa- uh, the safety and, and of medical cannabis and does it work. And so we need to get that passed. That's the next step. Uh, it's been uh, really a big turnaround in public opinion on this stuff in recent years, uh, so much so that this bill was uh, sponsored by the Republican chairman uh, of the Veterans Committee and the Democrat uh, ranking member of that same committee, and it passed unanimously out of that panel. So that's one of the next uh, big priorities uh, for, for uh, IAVA. And it's pretty fascinating because the the VA was saying just as early as uh, as recently as last year, well, we're not allowed to do this research because of the federal rules and restrictions and, and the classification and the schedule one or whatever it is that, that marijuana is. Then you find out, well, no, they are allowed to do a little bit of research, but they're only allowed to use marijuana from that's grown at Mississippi State University, I believe it is. And the stuff that they get, they have to wait, they have to ship a specific way. So by the time they get it, it's essentially no good anymore. It's like doing research on milk and then every gallon of milk you get is spoiled when it gets there um, a lot of issues going on and it seems 
again, as you said, that there has been this sea change in public opinion on this. Uh, and even those who are pretty stringently against the legalization of marijuana recreationally are not as against it for medicinal purposes and at least doing the research to find out if it works or if it doesn't. So that is something that I think a lot of people are going to be keeping an eye on. And I know one of the people keeping an eye on it going to be Tom Porter, Legislative Director for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, who's joined us here on The Morning Briefing. Now, Tom, if people are interested in finding out more about IAVA or becoming a member, which is actually free, it's of no charge to them, where do they go to find out all about the organization? Right, Eric, uh, and thanks for pointing that out. We believe that that, that the veterans, um, they pay with their service, and we don't want to charge them membership. Um, and so you can learn more about IAVA by going to IAVA.org. Uh, you can also learn about our top priorities there. Uh, again, that's uh, defending the GI Bill from cuts and abuse, uh, uh, reforming the VA, ensuring that, that we fill gaps in care for women veterans, um, expanding research on medicinal cannabis, uh, and of course, the uh, the burn pits issue that we're talking about. You can learn more about our RIP team uh, if you need assistance with uh, financial uh, difficulties, with uh, navigating the way through the VA. Uh, all of these things, again, are at IAVA.org. Uh, you can follow us uh, on our social media channels on Facebook, on Instagram, and, and uh, Twitter. Uh, pretty much everything that we do on Capitol Hill is uh, pun- punched out through uh, through our Twitter at, at IAVA. Please stay tuned to us there and other channels. Tom Porter from IAVA, thank you so much for joining us. You have been listening to the Morning Briefing Monday edition. It's coming to a close, but have no fear. We'll be back tomorrow. Eric Dame, on behalf of myself and Jake Hughes, have a fantastic day and see you tomorrow, 8 a.m. sharp. Replays coming up at 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. as they are every day. Take care. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t